So welcome, uh, particularly those who are here from high school or from outside of the area. So many young faces, new faces. Um, it's all people, mostly new, so of course people who know me already are tired of listening to this. So. We're going to engage in some moral theology today. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, the title of today's talk is, Is It a Mortal Sin? Although, for those who are in the process of our RCIA, this is sort of the introduction to morals and moral theology. I am going to do my best to make this as lucid and understandable as possible, but because of the nature of the topic and the sort of short amount of time that I have, it is very possible that I will go down several different rabbit holes of distinctions and lead to more confusion. Hopefully that will not happen. If it does happen, you can raise your hand and I potentially will take your question if Possibly when you answer it, maybe towards the end. We want to have some general comprehension of this. So the class today is, is it a mortal sin? First thing I want to say is, if you were asking me that question, I would want to know, why do you want to know? Because a lot of the times when people ask, is it a mortal sin, is, in their mind, if it's not a mortal sin, then they're going to go ahead and do it. Because, well, I won't go to hell if I do it. This is a pretty terrible attitude to have. If you know that mortal sin kills the life of, of God in your soul, that's sort of equal to saying, I want to hurt my friend enough, but not enough that they kick me away from being friends. Well, we're not going to do that to anyone that we love. Why would we do that to God? But this is not what we're going to address here. Is the attitude of a lot of people, none of you in here, of course, of wanting to do the minimum and to sin enough right to get to the edge of the cliff where you don't jump over. Instead, we're going to take it from a very valid question that people do ask. Father, is this a mortal sin or a confession? Am I in the state of mortal sin? And I've realized over my time as a priest that this is a good question, but much more complicated than most people think. I am not here to say that there is not moral truth and falsity. I'm not trying to say that things are not right or wrong, but hopefully after our discussion today, you're going to see that there are some distinctions that need to be made if we're going to have a proper understanding of this question and really moral theology in general. Moral theology is what I like to teach. My, more or less, my degree is in this. But the point that I'm trying to make us today is that if we're going to, as Catholics, do moral theology and study right from wrong, we can't just study these isolated acts and incidents. Well, this person did this, is it right or wrong? That's what we generally call casuistry. Take certain cases and we try to analyze it. Instead, as we're going to see towards the end, hopefully, of our lesson today, 
that you're going to have to see it within a much larger context, and that is the context of the acting person. The individual who has an intellect and a will and is free and is able to make free moral choices. And so we're going to get to that, but in order to do so, we're going to have to sort of look at what makes an act moral. And how do we, as Catholics specifically, analyze different moral acts in order to decide whether they, the act, is good or bad? All right, so I'm going to start with a little example. I'm going to do my best to keep this example all the way through our discussion today in order to establish some continuity and to help us think. I'm also going to probably encourage us, many of you took your paper and your pen here, to, so we're going to sort of draw a diagram. If I had more time today to do it on the computer, or if I had a screen, I could do it for you, but I think we'll be able to understand it. So this is our friend Lauren. I'm going to go to Lauren, and I'm going to give Lauren $20. Okay? I want you to watch that. So Lauren is taking $20. Let's repeat this. I did I just do? Describe the action that you just witnessed. What's that? I Exactly. What you saw and what you described is the physical act of me handing her a $20 bill. Does this tell you anything at all about the moral goodness, evil, or neutrality of that act? Not at all. All you witnessed was the physical act of me and individual giving another individual a $20 bill. So if y'all want to sort of do this little exercise, I'd take your sheet, horizontal way, and I'd write, giving a $20 bill. You can maybe put a little box around it right in this corner, okay? Giving a $20 bill. And if you want to, you could write under it, physical act. It's a physical act. You're simply observing it. What? though, is actually going on in me as an individual giving the other person a $20 bill. What else do you know about this act? <coughs> Besides what you observed, that I'm handing somebody a $20 bill, what else can you say about that act? Particularly from a moral perspective. Zero. Nothing. Can't say anything. Because it doesn't have any sort of moral weight to it. It's not what we would call necessarily a human act, even though I gave the $20 bill to her, and I'm a human, it's simply just a physical act of transference of some currency. Why, though, am I giving her that $20 bill? Because as a human, we just don't do physical acts. We as humans have what we call a will, the ability to choose certain things, to choose what is good or choose what is bad. So when we decide to talk about the moral act, we've got to ask some other questions. Why am I giving her that money? What is the choice, the moral choice that I'm making? It could be a number of different things. I could be handing her that $20 and saying, Lauren, I would like to buy a t-shirt from you. I could be purchasing from you. 
Lauren could be a homeless beggar on the street. And I, because of my pity for her, give her that $20 bill. It could be Lauren's birthday. And because Lauren's my good friend, Lauren, happy birthday. Here's the $20 bill. I could also be going to Lauren and say, Lauren, I know you're a crack dealer. I would like some drugs. But you don't know that. Or I could be going and bribing Lauren to do some favor for me that she wouldn't normally do. You have no idea what that is. The only way you can really know is if you know my heart and what I'm choosing and what she is intending to a great degree. But at least you're evaluating my actions, giving Lauren that $20 bill. You've got to know more. You've got to know what it is I'm exactly choosing. And so what I want you to do then is from that one part right here, I want you to make like two lines extended. And I want you to write under both of them, object of the act, okay? This is somewhat confusing language. This is the most important part, more or less, of evaluating a moral act, not the physical act, but the thing that is being chosen what we call the object or the end of the act. So the act is, I make the choice, what am I choosing? What is the thing that I am intending to do when I give her that $20 bill? It could be any of those things. The top one, I want you to write good object, and the bottom of the bat is bad object. It describes what exactly I am choosing. What's the, the end of the action itself? So the end of the action itself that I'm choosing, if it's to give her money because she is poor and needy, is that a good act, a good moral act, or a bad moral act? Good. It's a good object. Again, object is like the thing that I'm going towards. You could potentially also use the word end, where the act is oriented towards. That I'm choosing. What if I want to buy some drugs from Lauren? Not that she would ever deal drugs from Lauren. Is that a good object or a bad object? Well, it could potentially be a good object because she's a pharmacist, but let's assume that it's crack. <laughs> ah, these are going to be very important distinctions to make. But let's assume that some crack, and I'm a crack addict, I'm making it's a bad object. All right? A choice that I ought not be making. So what you could do is under a good object, just for an example, if you want to write helping the poor, buying groceries, things that are good. It's a bad object, you could use buying drugs, or you could also put bribing, because we're going to get back to this idea of bribing in a little bit because we're continuing it through. The object of the act is the thing that you are choosing, not simply the physical act. It's fleshing it out. When I give her the $20 bills, I, as a human being, am choosing something. I'm making a choice, and therefore, it can be either morally good or morally bad. Outside of anything else, just by looking at what I'm choosing. Does this make sense so far? Okay? You could use it for any act. You could use it for me pointing at a gun at somebody. You could use it in me taking something from someone. You could use it for me saying something to someone. 
It's not just the physical act. You've got to understand what you're choosing and why you're choosing it. What's the purpose? What are you intending in it? I am intending, in this case, to bribe Lauren. And so there are certain acts that, as we've seen, can be good or bad in and of themselves. And certain acts in and of themselves are going to be good as helping the poor, uh, being loving to other people, being merciful, being courageous. These are acts that are good in and of themselves when we choose to do this. But there are also acts that are bad in and of themselves. That every time we choose them, it means that our will is somewhat distorted. It's not oriented to its proper end. That they are always wrong. And no matter why you're choosing this act, which we're going to get into, doesn't make the act right. Murdering. Deliberate, intentional taking of an innocent human life. Directly and intentionally cursing or blaspheming the name of God. Taking money, particularly large amounts of money, stealing. These things, along with a lot of other stuff, like abortion or euthanasia or fornication or contraception, whatever it is, these acts, we believe, are wrong in and of themselves. No matter why you're choosing them, they're always going to be wrong. They sort of assume, like I said, a disorder in our will. But the very fact that you chose it, there's something wrong. Okay? Does this make sense? Now, of those acts, and that's sort of the, the, you could kind of make the division, more or less, between the $20 bill, which is the physical act, the bribe, and the helping to the poor. But there are going to be some acts that are not just wrong in and of themselves, but are really, really wrong. What we're going to call grave matters. So is it wrong in and of itself to tell a lie? Yes. But does it necessarily mean that that is grave matters? Not necessarily. How do we know the things that are grave matters? I'm going to seemingly make somewhat of a contradiction here. Is that acts that are wrong, that are seriously wrong, tend to contradict the Ten Commandments. Tend to contradict the Ten Commandments. However, and so the Ten Commandments specify grave matters. However, well, you say, well, Father, that every time you tell a lie, it's grave matter. No, not necessarily. It depends to whom you're telling the lie, what kind of lie you're telling. All these other things can determine where there's grave matter. But in general, the Ten Commandments offer a good guideline to say, this is serious business. Stealing, killing, committing adultery, lying, not honoring or worshiping God. These tend to be grave matter, all right? So you think of it, missing mass on Sunday. That's a pretty big deal. Now, maybe you miss it for a good reason. We'll get into that distinction. Murdering someone, 
not self-defense, but the deliberate intentional taking of innocent human life, committing adultery, committing fornication, stealing large amounts of money. These are the things that tend to be really serious issues. For us as Catholics, we tend to, or have at least in the past several decades, to focus on abortion, premarital intercourse, adultery, homosexual acts, cloning of human beings, euthanasia, stuff that deals with sex and the issues of life and death tend to be grave matter. Why? Because sex and procreation are holy and life is holy. But also committing sacrilege against the Eucharist, blaspheming God's name, things that tend to be very, very holy to treat them improperly tends to be serious matter because it's really important stuff. Make sense? Tends to be grave matter. But still, we can make distinctions and we need to make distinctions because, well, that's what we do as human beings and moral theologians. So, is it grave matter in general to say the Lord's name in vain? Yes, even though we can make some distinctions. What is the Lord's name? The Lord's name is Yahweh. It is Jesus. It's not the word God. That is not the, Lord, the Lord's name. Should you just throw the word God around around a lot? No, it's technically not breaking that commandment, even though we want to show respect to the Lord's name. Is stealing, in general, a grave matter? Yes. But is stealing a dollar from your parents grave matter? No. Is stealing a million dollars in general grave matter? Yes, it is. And so you're going to look at the amount that was taken, and even in a certain sense from whom you're taking it. If I take $10 from a poor homeless person, it may not seem a lot to take $10 to me, but it is a lot from that person. So you've got to judge it according to the situation. Is killing wrong in and of itself? No, it's not. Is it possible that we can kill out of self-defense? Is it possible that you could accidentally kill someone and it not be, in a certain sense, we're going to make a distinction highly culpable or at least grave matter? Yes, you can make that distinction. And this is what we need to do. We need to think about things and give precise definitions. But in general, there are going to be things that are serious business that are grave matter that we as humans ought not to choose. Does this make sense? But what I just did though, is I made some distinctions that are gonna be very, very important between not only what is right and wrong, but also what is grave matter and what is not grave matter, all right? So now what we want to do is from each of those two things that you wrote, good object and bad object, I want you to extend two lines from each. And I want you to write good intention, bad intention, good intention, bad intention under both of those, or on the side of both of those. Because this is where moral theology gets to be a little more complicated and where the distinctions come in. Because 
even though we specified the moral act more. I know that I just didn't give Lauren $20. I gave Lauren a bribe. All right? But does that tell us, oh, Father, you're going to hell. You gave her a bribe. Does it tell us all we need to know about the moral act? No, it doesn't. We need to ask next a further question. The further question is, why did I, the actor, choose to bribe Lauren? This is what we call the second part of the analysis of the moral act, what we call the intention or the end of the act, or the end of the actor, me, as the individual. It is, what I would say is the further intention. Why am I choosing this act? So you, you want to put questions. The object is defined as what are you choosing? And the second is, why am I choosing it? This is the deep intention. This is in the heart. It could be in the mind. And it's also quite possible that I could have two or three intentions in choosing whatever act it is. So what I want to do is sort of break it down here. The first is the good act. I am choosing, parents are going to go back to giving her the $20 bill, is what I'm going to do. Lauren is homeless, she's poor, and I am choosing to give her $20 bills in, uh, in charity. This is the object of the act. Then you come and you interview me afterwards and say, Father, you gave her $20 bills. Why did you give poor, homeless, and destitute Lauren $20? And I, assuming I'm being truthful, say, well, I know Lauren, she uh, is cold outside, she is going, doesn't have a place to stay, and I, I want her to be able to buy a hotel room so she can be warm and well fed. So I want to preserve her bodily health tonight because it's gonna be freezing. It's a good intention, isn't it? Wouldn't you say, Lauren? Well, yeah, it's a good intention. So I have a good moral action and from that, I have a good intention of why I'm choosing it. Why am I choosing to do that? But let's say you come and say, Father, why did you choose to give homeless, destitute Lauren $20? And instead, i got to be honest. I went to the bishop, and the bishop's been kind of mad at me lately, and I want to impress the bishop that I really cared about the poor. Now, did I perform a good act? Absolutely I did. I helped Lauren. But, was my intention good? No, it wasn't. My intention was not good. So, let's compare the two. I chose the same act, but for two different intentions. If I chose it to help her because I didn't want her to freeze to death tonight, was that a good moral action? Absolutely, it was a good moral action. But, if I chose it to impress somebody, was that a good moral action that I should be applauded for? No, not really. Even if I wanted her to get off the street, but I also want to impress the bishop, still, my intention clouds the goodness of the act. It's still a good object, but my intention changes things a little bit. I've got something to answer for. Now let's go to that exchange of the money again, and I'm bribing Lauren. And again, what a bribe is, I'm going to offer her some money 
her to do something illegal or she would not normally do. So let's just assume here that Lauren is a cop and that she has just stopped me for doing like 120 in a school zone or something like that. I've done something pretty egregious. The chances are if she arrests me, I will go to prison. All right? So I realize that I'm going home with $120, 120 miles an hour because I need to get home because my child is dying. Or I have some medicine I need to bring the child. And I cannot afford to go to prison. I plead, beg, and the cop thinks, you're full of it, your kid's not dying. So I offer the cop, Lauren, a bribe. Did I choose something wrong? Absolutely, I choose to offer money to sort of convince someone to do something against their will. But is my intention good? Yeah, my intention is good. I care about my kid. But does that make it a good moral act? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. So the point here is a good intention does not make an act which is in itself wrong by its object good. Doesn't make it good. So I could choose to have an abortion. But even though my intention is really good because I, I, I don't want the child to suffer or because of medical reasons, I'm still choosing something which is morally evil. My good intention doesn't make it good. Now, let's say that I go to Lauren and say, I have a bad intention. I want to bribe Lauren so as a cop so that she will turn her eyes so I can buy some drugs. Can buy. I'm gonna buy some crack from Liliana. Liliana's a crack dealer. <laughs> and so she's the cop. I say, hey, here's the 20 bucks, turn away. I want some crack from Liliana. Now, was my intention in bribing her good? No, it wasn't. It wasn't good. So, in a certain sense, it makes an already bad moral act even worse because of my bad. Does this make sense, y'all? Are y'all with me so far? Have I led to tremendous confusion? Now I know. So what we've looked at so far, though, is the object of the act and the intention of the act, why I'm choosing it. So in Catholic theology, in moral theology, particularly since John Paul II, it's very clear that we believe that in evaluating the morality of an act, the object is going to be considered the most important. That just because you have a good intention doesn't mean that all of a sudden that bad thing you chose becomes good. It's still wrong. And in the 80s and 90s, before your time, this was the teaching. This was an error that people had that John Paul II in 1993 had to clarify. Just because you have a good intention, or as we'll see, just because the circumstances are a certain thing, doesn't make committing an abortion, stealing a large amount of money, or committing a bribe a good thing. Just because your intention was good doesn't change the object of the act. And so John Paul II really wanted to emphasize the importance of the object of the act. However, and this is a little trivia question, which we're not going to get into today because it's going to really lead us on a rabbit hole. St. Thomas Aquinas might disagree. 
Now, for our intents and purposes, where we live, or we lived in a world where there was moral relativism, there's no good or bad. We need to secure that there are certain things which are good and certain things which are bad, regardless of your further intention of choosing them. But does it mean that my intention doesn't matter? No, my intention matters a lot. In a certain sense, my intention can really, really matter about understanding an object of the act, but we're not going to get into that. So this is the question that I want to use to illustrate this. Let's go back to me buying, bribing Lauren in order for me, my further intention, what's in my heart, to buy crack from Liliana. I don't want to talk about the act. I want to talk about me, the actor. Because that further intention is what is it really the heart. This is why I am choosing something. If you were going to describe me, would you describe me more as a dishonest person who bribes other individuals? Or would you consider me a drug addict? What am I more of? What best, both of them in a certain sense, but what really describes me as an individual more, the dishonest briber or the drug addict? Who says briber? Raise your hand. Who says drug addict? Raise your hand. All right, y'all. Right answer. It's true. So, as important as the object of the act is, that my good intention or bad intention doesn't change it. What really describes and transforms the person is, yes, of course, choosing a bad thing. I become a briber by choosing that. And particularly if I make a habit of choosing that dishonest behavior, I become a pernicious person. However, what really I am is more of a briber. I'm more of a drug addict. So if you're going to really try to reform me and change me, to change my heart, you got to get to my drug addiction. Because that's the real reason I'm choosing the thing. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas would say. Again, I can't tell you exactly where he would say it, but at a later date, maybe I could. I'm just kind of going off the top of my head here. Why is this important? It's important for a number of different reasons, but it gets to what I want to sort of emphasize in this lesson, particularly as we're seeing it as beginning to describe moral theology, because as I said, you can't just look at the act itself. You've got to look at a lot more, including the intention, because it's the heart of why I am choosing good or bad acts that describe who I really am. And this is the beginning of understanding morality from the perspective of the acting person. There's no such thing as this individual act that just exists. That's either right or wrong. In a certain sense, yes, there are things which are objectively right and objectively wrong. But I, as a human person, am choosing those things. And so if we're really going to understand Catholic moral theology, while we anchor it and believe that certain things are right or wrong, we have to look at it from the perspective of the acting person. We've got to look at a lot of the things to describe 
what exactly is being chosen, and here's the other thing, how culpable the individual choosing it is. Because this is the answer to your question, or the beginning of the answer to the question. Is it a mortal sin? Mortal sin is that sin which kills the life of God in us, and we need to have three categories for it. It should be grave matter, you need to know it's grave matter, and you have to freely choose it. All of those things make something a mortal sin. But notice, grave matter is not moral sin. Grave matter is a part and parcel of mortal sin. Just because you choose something which is gravely wrong does not necessarily mean you've committed mortal sin. There are other factors that you've got to look at to see if it is gravely sinful. So to a certain extent, mortal sin, or even describing sin itself, means we've got to talk about how responsible or how culpable you are in the action that you chose. Even though you chose something really great, we've got to look at your intention, and we also have to look at the third part of the moral act, the circumstances to determine your culpability and whether or not it was morally sinful or not. Does this make sense? Because what happens is, I think a lot of the time, Catholics conflate gravely, grave matter and mortal sin into one. Everything that is mortally sinful involves grave matter, but everything that is grave matter is not necessarily mortally sinful. However, I would say practically, if you've chosen something that's grave matter, you ought to go to confession. But how do we judge culpability? So, let's look at back at the bride. Culpability means responsibility, individual responsibility of how I'll be looked at or I'll be judged. I'm bribing her because I can't afford to go to jail. I want to go and take care of my sick and dying child. My intention is good. Or I'm bribing her to turn her head so I can buy drugs. Good intention for her is bad intention. Is there, is somehow my good intentions, even though I chose the wrong act, lessen or mitigate my culpability? Does it? Does it? Okay. Let's give another example that might be a little more intense. Let's say that there is a woman who is pregnant. She knows that is the life inside of her. She does not want the responsibility of raising this child, and she wants to go have more unrestricted sex. So she goes to have an abortion. Her further intention to have an abortion is complete irresponsibility. The other one chooses the act. She really believes a lie that it's not really a baby, and she 
is scared and fearful of having to raise the child by herself, that she's scared of what the parents are going to say. Both of them committed abortion. Is one more culpable than the other? Yes. So why? Because of her further intention. The one that was scared that, that, that even though she knew what she was doing, you're going to be more merciful to that person because of that further intention, wouldn't you be? You'd still say you committed a really serious act, but I'm going to be much more merciful. So if that's the case, why not the same thing with the bride? Oh, I know your further intention. You really cared about your kids. You still did something wrong. You still may get a ticket, but you'd only get a decade of the rosary instead of a whole rosary. Not that we're going to judge penances according to that necessarily. But why we chose something can at times mitigate our culpability. Although there are times that even though you thought you chose the right thing, think, think Nazi Germany. I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing of exterminating the Jews. Just because of that, there's a certain ignorance that you have that does not mitigate culpability. You should have known better. You are going to have to serve Christ. But even more, this shows you that just because you have a good intention, sometimes it does not mitigate culpability, and there's great responsibility. But this further proves the point, at least in my opinion, of the need to see things from the perspective of the acting person. Now, how else can we do that besides just looking at attention? We've got to look at the circumstances. It's really the third point, the circumstances, is the third part of the moral act that really helps us to a certain degree describe what we're doing, but also to really talk about our moral responsibility, our culpability, as it leads to whether or not this is something which is gravely sinful and how responsible we are for it. So, obviously the act, what you're choosing, the what, the further intention or the object of the actor is the why. The circumstances are the who, the when, the where of it. Those are the things that are very crucial for understanding and putting an action in the perspective of the acting person and therefore deciding moral culpability and whether or not this is truly mortally sinful and what type of penance you might need or how guilty you ought to be. So what do we mean by that? I could use the example of the bribe and, and all these different types of things because it sort of it helps flesh it out. We can also use a lot of other things to describe circumstances. So let's say that I want to offer a bribe to Lauren. And Lauren is basically some guy at the front of a bar, and I want to get in and cut the line, and I'm offering her a bribe so I can get in because I want the drink special. Er, am I offering a bribe to let me in for everybody else? Yeah, I am. But let's say that I go and she is a priest 
is. No, you're not. Well, you are a priest. You're not a priest there. You're not for Catholics here. Yeah. But let's say that I go and offer that bribe to the priest in order to forgive me of my sins. Or I go and offer it to a politician to pass a certain law so that my company can continue producing damaging pharmaceuticals or whatever. It matters who I'm bribing for the gravity of the act. Big time. It also can describe when and where I'm doing it. So let's look at other actions because of the fact that I didn't fully plan this lesson to the end because some things came up that I couldn't finish it. And I'm going to defer back to the ones that I think are very easy for my and my mind to understand. Let me go back to that. I'm going to use different examples. We're going to freshen it up here. Our $20 bill has run out of its, its, its value and its use. So you can describe the act of a man and a woman coming together in the marital act. That's a physical act. That is, in a certain sense, morally neutral. But if we find out that it is the man and the woman coming together in the marital act, and they are married, and they are giving of themselves totally in order to bring forth new life in the covenant of marriage. And we've learned a little bit more. We know what they're choosing and sort of the object of the act, it's the marital gift itself. We can begin further analyzing why they're choosing it. But we can also make some other distinctions and circumstances. The simple fact of a man and a woman coming together, if that woman is not the man's wife, then all of a sudden that becomes something really different. It becomes adultery even though your intention might be very good to give of yourself and to love that other person. You could be with your wife, engaged in the marital act, but it could be 12 o'clock in Gerard Park. The circumstances, the where, make this a radically different act. I know that sounds really crazy, but it's true. Let's talk about taking a gun, and I aim a gun and I shoot somebody. What is that describing? physical act, but we and find a little bit more that I am shooting you because I want to kill you in order to steal your money. Well, you're an innocent person, I'm a thief, that makes it more complicated. But let's look at the fact that I am a drug addict, and when I'm doing it, I'm out of my mind. I'm not free in choosing that act because in a certain sense, my mind is fried. I'm, I'm, I'm in a state of kind of insanity. Did I still commit murder? Yes. Am I still a drug addict and, and a thief? Yes. But is my culpability lessened a little bit? Yeah, because I was in that state of being a drug addict. Now you may say, well, Father, you shouldn't have started using drugs in the first place. Well, what if the fact that I started using drugs is because I had been abused by my alcoholic father since the day I was three or four years old. And I turned to drugs to escape, or turned to this gang to escape because of that. We can get a lot further down and to look at the situation that led to this person choosing that act. The individual who is 
engaging in premarital intercourse. But what if that person was the victim of some type of abuse? What if that person was desperate on the street and needed to prostitute herself in order to get some money? Well, the fact is that my client, she's doing it for a good intention, doesn't make it right, but because of the circumstances of where she came from, it may mitigate her culpability, particularly if there's someone forcing her to do it in sex trafficking. We can go on and on and on in these different ways of looking at things, but it shows that we've got to take a lot more into consideration than the object of the act and the intention. We've got to look at the circumstances. Because circumstances also can change certain acts. Let's say that I go steal a cup from a restaurant, a nice, fancy cup. That's wrong. That's stealing. I don't care what my intention is. But let's say that cup is actually a chalice that I stole from church. All of a sudden, that stealing becomes sacrilege, too, because I've taken a holy object. But you've got to be able to describe it in the detail to know exactly what's being chosen and why you're chosen. But let's say that I'm stealing a chalice, but I didn't know nothing of religion. I just see a shiny gold object. Am I intending to commit sacrilege? No. Did I? Yes. But because the fact is I didn't know any better, I didn't have full knowledge, then my culpability is lessened. And that's why your full knowledge of what you're doing and your full freedom is important for it to become a mortal sin. So the woman who has chosen to have an abortion, regardless of her further intentions, is that she didn't know what she was doing, and she was genuinely ignorant. And sometimes it's going to be very hard to plead an invincible ignorance that pleads all culpability. She committed a grave act. She needs to go to confession. But is it truly morally sinful? Hard to say. What if her parents forced her to do it, or her boyfriend forced her to do it? She wasn't totally free. Is it still a wrong act? Yes. May it still bother her conscience? Yes. Should it be helpful to go to confession and seek healing? Yes. But was that grave matter necessarily morally sinful? No, not necessarily. Because what happens is, is looking at was the person free and how much did that person know and the other circumstances that surround it help us to be more merciful. Help us to be more merciful. Because the truth is, can I judge or you judge? No. Who judges the heart? God does. Now, in a court of law, we can certainly look at evidence and say, it sure seems this person did it intentionally or didn't intentionally. They had a malicious intent or they didn't. They were free or not. Courts of law do the same thing. If you kill somebody, they're going to say, is this manslaughter? Was it voluntary, involuntarily? Was it homicide? Was it murder, first, second, third degree? They make all these distinctions in order to say your punishment is going to be more or less severe. They take into consideration all of these factors. They see it from the perspective of the acting person in the same way we need to do it. And not just evaluating moral acts, which we need to be able to do, particularly I as a priest need to be able to do it, 
But as individuals, we need to do it in order that we can show mercy and understanding. Not to say, oh, you came from a bad background, you're not culpable for anything. No, there comes a point when you should know better. There comes a point when quite possibly you need to work through your issues. But it's very difficult for anyone to judge that. And that's why priests want to be merciful in confession. And why often we'll ask questions. So if a person comes to me and says, well, Father, I have a problem with this specific sexual sin. I'm going to ask, well, were you abused? Were you drunk? Were you forced into it? There are all these different questions that can be asked where I can say, you're going to get a harder penance or you're going to get a less penance. Or I could say, I want to encourage you to stop doing this or get out of this relationship with this deadbeat loser that you're dating or quit hanging around your friends who are a bunch of drug addicts and thugs. Or, man, here's the name of a counselor. Let's really talk about it. You have some much deeper wounds that you're acting out of. And quite often, that's the case. A lot of the times, particularly as a priest, when I see self-destructive behavior, particularly in young people, that means they are trying to kill a much deeper pain. And so it's not fair to say, label this person as a drug addict or a whore or a slut or a crazy person until you know their whole story. I remember when I was, I can give you a number of examples of this, I was teaching in seminary some high schoolers theology and morality compared to them. There was one girl that everyone's sleeping around and doing all these different types of things, and everyone just kind of ostracized her. She's the slut, she's whatever. No one respected her. The boys treated her like garbage. Well, she and I started talking, and I just started asking questions. You know, when did this start? Well, it started happening about 12 or 13 years old, along with some heavy drug use. So fortunately, I was smart enough when I was young to ask, what happened to you right before that? And then she broke down crying. She said, when I was 11 years old, I was raped by my brother, and no one believed me. That is going to mess you up, big time. And so everyone's putting judgment on her when all these other actions, which are not good actions, but they come from a much deeper brokenness. That's the circumstance. So it's the distinction that we need to be able to make, particularly to show mercy to others, but also in our own selves. Because just because you committed something which is grave or sinful, the priest or the individual is going to take it or yourself to look at all those different circumstances. However, it is very difficult at times for us to make that judgment. We can't see ourselves clearly. And there may be questions that we don't know. We need to follow our conscience, and we hope that our conscience which is that function of human reason that helps us to a certain extent apply the moral law and to be able to see whether or not we've been living in accord with it or out of accord with it. It's a whole separate class to do with conscience. We need to follow our conscience. If our conscience tells us not to do something and we do it even though it's not actually wrong, we need to follow our conscience. But just because your conscience tells you it's okay to do something that's wrong, well, Maybe you're invincible ignorance and you don't know it's wrong, but there's a good chance that maybe there's that voice inside you saying it is wrong and you still choose it anyhow. You 
can't use that invisible ignorance as an excuse all the time. This is where it gets very complicated, but this is where we need to look at things from the perspective of the acting person in order to show mercy. Does this make sense, y'all? So that's the thing, the question, is it a mortal sin? I don't know. Is it great matter? Oh yeah, I could pretty much tell you that or not. But we're gonna have to ask those other questions to know if indeed this action is a mortal sin and whether it is or not, how culpable we are for it. And I'll wrap up with this. And then I'll have some time for questions. Did you take a moment while you covered it? Yeah. The main, one of the main reasons I said at the beginning that people ask this question is because they want to go do some dirty things to their girlfriends or their boyfriends or their friends or their alcohol or their drugs. And they want to get away with it, which basically betray that you're not acting as a son, someone who wants to love the father, but you're acting as a slave to a master that you should get away with. But more often than that, the reason people ask this question is because of the deeper scrupulosity. I see a lot of people struggling with scrupulosity today. It's always been an issue. And scrupulosity is basically we worry too much about the letter of the law and not about the spirit of the law. Doesn't mean that I'm saying the spirit of the law means there's no right or wrong. Yes, there's right or wrong. But it becomes scrupulosity is basically a form of religious neuroses. Like an OCD for religion. And it can cause a lot of problems. In general, people could have a genetic predisposition towards neurotic behavior, which manifests itself in religious behavior. And there's medicine for it. I've seen some people's lives completely change because they had medicine for it. It could also come as a result of chaos in your upbringing, looking for little details of things to bring order and structure to your life. But most of the time that I see it today, in whatever form it is, is a result of perfectionism. Perfectionism. Which is a whole separate talk. Perfectionism is this desire to be perfect, which to a great degree can come because we're super overachievers. Another degree can come because maybe there's some genetic predisposition towards it. But a lot of times it becomes because we have a false idea of who God is, sometimes dictated by our own parents put too much of a burden on us to be perfect in order to win or achieve love. And so every time we make a mistake, we feel that God's going to hate us or punish us. God is not the judge at an Olympic gymnastics tournament. He's your loving father. He's not there to nitpick you. We need to be aware when we do things wrong, particularly out of malice, and particularly when it's gravely sinful. But God's not there to catch you make mistakes and send you to hell. That attitude of who God is combined with a lack of proper love and formation can lead to perfectionism which can ruin a person's life. And just because you're perfect, perfectionism doesn't mean that's because of it. I think a lot of the times that what often causes perfectionism is social media, is comparison, is having to be the best and having no attention. These are all different issues that can be dealt with in spiritual direction or potentially in reading certain books or in therapy. 
but I think a lot of the times, at least here, we have such people who are so good and they're trying to do the right thing. I see their heart. The Lord sees their heart. You're going to make mistakes, but the Lord does not expect you to be perfect. He doesn't expect you to be a superhero. We're going to make mistakes. We never use that as an excuse to say, no, I'm going to make mistakes. Let me go buy some crack from William. <laughs> no. Because it's the will. Some people's wills are good. Some people's wills are bad. It doesn't mean just because you have a good will that all of a sudden everything you do is good. No. There's certain acts are wrong. But we've got a real problem with that perfectionism, scrupulosity, that is taking the joy out of living the moral life. That's why we act morally. This is what the catechism teaches. This is what the comma teaches. We ought to act morally because we want to be happy. And that living a life of sin, a life not in accord with God's law, or in accord with the natural law of our bodies and who we're created to be, trust me, y'all, does not lead to happiness. But living a temperate life, a courageous life, a just life, a life filled with prudence, love, faith, and hope, that leads to a happy life. Not just happy like, I'm going to the circus, even though the circus is freaking me a lot because there are clowns there, but a deep joy, a deep blessedness that the Lord allows us to experience on earth. The moral life, as a result, is the desire for happiness, but the moral life, for those who are coming back to class later that I'm not necessarily going to teach, is not something separate. It is a fruit that comes from our deeper spiritual life and our union with Christ and our knowledge of our identity in living in relationship to God, our loving Father. It is the morality, not of a servant who has a bunch of rules, as I said at Matthew's weekend, you've got to follow them, but that of the Son, of the Beloved, who knows how much they're loved and wants to live in the freedom of the sons of God. There's not oppressed by all the rules and regulations, but because they love, they would never do anything to hurt God or hurt those whom they love. And if they do, they seek forgiveness in the Lord and hope for the brothers and sisters sin to grant. So this is not only moral theology, mortal sin as opposed to venial sin, which are smaller sins, but it is moral theology in general. One last thing that I want to make a point on, and I can't make this as a categorical statement, but when we, I found, so the issue is I think a lot of times people find it difficult to judge what is exactly grave matter. I think this is the issue. I have a hard time judging what's grave matter and therefore what's mortal sin. They could generally decide, well, okay, I'm kind of free or I'm not, but the person, or I know right from wrong, but the people that tend to struggle with it, it's the issue of what's grave matter. And as we've seen, that can be a little complicated. But I'm going to give you one thing to think of, particularly if you struggle with perfectionism and scrupulosity. In general, not 100% of the time, but in general, rarely are sins committed just in the mind going to be mortally sinful, particularly sins against the Sixth Commandment. Now, what do I mean by that? 
sin in your body that contradicts the sixth commandment, whether it be by yourself or others, that's almost always going to be great matter. You may not be morally sinful because you may not know it's wrong and you may not be fully free. But just because you have a lustful thought does not mean you can't go to communion. You can't control your mind the whole entire time. Now, if you spent all night binging on porn and then you had a lustful thought the next day, that might be different. But just because you look for two seconds at a cute girl on campus doesn't mean God's going to send you to hell. Let's be reasonable about this. If every little lustful thought that passed through our mind was morally sinful, everyone's going to hell. <laughs> Let's be reasonable. The problem is, if you have a thought and you dwell on it for a long period of time, and particularly if you begin to plan to act on it, oh, we passed into some potentially very serious matter. The circumstance has to define that. It also defines who you're lusting after and all these different things. But the real problem with that is if you keep entertaining it here, it passes into here. Just like a wrathful thought. Just because you're angry at someone, there could be just anger. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've committed some horribly grave sin. Now, if you act on it and you punch that guy in the face and you shoot him, you may not be fully culpable for what you've done because you act out of wrath, but you still committed a grave act. But just because you get mad at the person who won't take white on red, right there at Pinhook in St. Mary's, <laughs> doesn't mean that you committed a mortal sin. Now, if you get mad and then you decide to tail them and then shoot the finger at them and drive them off the road, <laughs> then maybe you have. Or if you let the anger situate in your heart and you become a lustful person, an angry person, a racist person, that's the problem. How do you judge that? You're going to do that with your priest, your parents, your spirit director to figure it out. But please, 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 if you know that you struggle with scrupulosity and perfectionism, remember this principle. Rarely, in your case specifically of a good will, is something that happens in your head, particularly that is not willed or fully chosen, ever going to be grave matter? Please go to communion. Please go to communion. The Lord can heal us. He can heal us. I didn't get into what venial sin is. Those are smaller sins that don't involve grave matter, that don't involve other things. They can be forgiven on the cross, different sacramentals, but at least now we can understand what mortal sin is what it's not, trying to make the distinction as Catholics as to what the different parts of moral theology are, and to live in the freedom of the Son, the sons and daughters of God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, it was in the beginning, and is now, and ever shall be, without Amen. Sort of a brief addendum um, when it comes to a person who's committed a grave act, gravely moral. Whether or not you're sure that it's morally sinful, you ought to go to confession, particularly if it's against the Sixth Commandment, um, and then discuss with the priests if necessary. Uh, I guess sort of the principle of better safe than sorry. Also, when it comes to receiving communion, we don't want to fall into scrupulosity, but if you have committed something that you know is gravely, um, morally illicit, uh, regardless of your personal culpability or these other things, uh, you certainly can refrain from going to communion. 
Now, again, just because you have a lustful thought, you can still go to communion. We're talking about these bigger sins in the body. Um, and if you know that you are tender scrupulousness, uh, just be very careful. You don't want to just make it worse by going to confession for small little things, and you could discuss with your confessor how often you want to go and your different patterns of behavior. Uh, but in general, I want to say that we want to be better safe than sorry, and at least go and receive the Lord's mercy, uh, even if you are not sure that you're fully culpable for uh, the grave matter that you chose.